Have you been zombified by the history of zombification? Yeah. Um, And this is one of those where I find this one terrifying, right? There's somewhere I'm like, oh, this is a really funny one. And this is one where I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this like legit keeps me up at night. Yeah. So Yeah. um, Like zombification is like our history, our present. I hope not our future, but. mm. Uh, Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I agree. I hope not our future, too. Um, And which I think is at the heart of what we're trying to do with this show, right? Is avoid, avoid this. A zombification future. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. Well, uh, welcome all of you to the Zombified podcast, your source for fresh brains and also discussions about whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future of zombification. No, 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 we should be optimistic. We should be be both, but we should definitely not forget the optimism. Yeah. I mean, I think we can be like realistic and look at what's actually going on and like that doesn't necessarily have to make us pessimistic no not at right all. No, we could be like so. yeah things are fucked up but hey like we have all these things that we can do to um resist zombification there's all these ways that we can build community and mutual aid right like there's so many things that are just like available at the moment for us to do to resist zombification in our own lives and build systems that maybe are less zombifying and also to be honest resisting is super fun you know like it's one of the funnest things in the world <laughs> it is isn't it like it's yeah. like yeah it's it's fun yeah it's like of, fuck you yeah exactly punk rock. Up, yeah and so um, <laughs> yeah i love resistance and so um which is i think why i like well, it's part of the reason I like today's guest so much, I, you know. So um, today we're talking with Mozilla Kazikone, uh-huh. who is awesome. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, you're still like, do I still have a job? <laughs> <laughs> Should I have said that? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, no, but so Mozilla Kazi, she honestly is one of my favorite people in the world. And, yeah. Um, I don't know. I just want to be like her, I guess, is the way to describe <laughs> we all, it. We all want to be Mozilla Kazikone, yeah. one oh. way or another, yeah. <laughs> so she's a political scientist. Um, she's at the College of the Desert, um, which is a community college. And she is so uh, smart, so enthusiastic, so committed to... Um, I mean, just so many levels of bringing education to people and, you know, bringing up conversations and topics and, you know, approaches that, uh, I mean, to be totally honest, like, I don't, I don't hear these kinds of things from people in my immediate academic life here. Right. So it's amazing to have her as part of our Channel Z community and to be bringing a lot of these topics and frameworks and, you know, these ideas of like looking at zombification in this historical context, context, you know, thinking about things like slavery, thinking about things like, you know, the current, you know, system of prisons and incarceration that we have through this lens of zombification where, I mean, it's almost it's so obvious that you almost don't like stop and think about like applying this lens to it because it's so obvious, but it's really helpful, I think, to 
you know, to, to think about both, you know, the, the processes that happen that zombify people have zombified people in history and, and the ways that we can resist that. Yeah. And, and the ways that we're still being zombified by these things, you know, um, cause it's still going on. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a prospect in the future um, for both, you know, continued and increased zombification and for, you know, resistance to that and, you know, building alternatives to zombification. So we kind of we go through all of that in, in this episode. I mean, I feel like this episode is like a sort of, you know, historical lens and then like some soul searching and then we like we're like oh everything like there's you know we can resist and there's so many things we can build and then we go back into the apocalypse and then we're like but it's it's gonna be okay you know so yeah you know at some point we should have mozilla kazi on for just some fun topic you know because i feel like in she's really fun and then we always have her talk about like pretty serious stuff i mean this stuff is serious but it's also you know it's not like uh it's not it's super engaging, right? To think and talk about about all of this, it and is, is, yeah, so. yeah. And if you want to check out some of the really fun stuff that Mozilla Kazi has done, go to Zam twenty twenty two. So if you go to our YouTube channel for Channel Z and you go to Zam twenty twenty two, Mozilla Kazi organized a whole session about the history of reggae and resistance with. Oh no, but it wasn't televised. It wasn't televised. So, so if you guys oh have a time gosh, machine. Right. You guys should go and show up to that because it was a blast. That was amazing. Um, okay, well maybe we should do like a a little video version. Actually, you know, music and yeah, like yeah. that would be really fun. So, and, but people who do want to also see more of Mozilla Kasi should check out her show. Yes, uh, Zombie History. That's right. right. So, so you can go to Channel Z Zombie History and see all the amazing shows that um, Mozilla Kazi has hosted and produced um, uh, and uh, her co-host and co-producer uh, Liz Grumbach, who you actually heard from just a few weeks ago on this podcast. If you so. hadn't, go check it out after this one. Yeah. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Mozilla Kazi Kone. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how are live we are recording we are here with the amazing mozilla kazi kone mozilla kazi thank you so much for coming on the podcast i cannot tell you how long i have been wanting to do this podcast with you like years so long (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thanks for having me it's really great to be with you all on the podcast truly Ms. Lekazi, would you introduce yourself in your own words for all of our listeners? Sure. Uh, hello, hello world out there. My name is Mzilikazi Kone. I'm a professor of political science at College of the Desert. I also am uh, going to be teaching in our new social justice program and I'm helping to build our ethnic studies program at the college. And I guess that's mm-hmm. that's that's my professional hat. So yeah, yeah I'm a and teacher. Then- you also have your zombie apocalypse hat, right? Like we That's have been right. part 
of the Channel Z community together since uh, some point early in the pandemic when we all decided to work on this crazy thing, which was television in the zombie apocalypse. So <laughs> That's right. I think it was um, Zam. I, I met you all right before Zam 2020. And so that was my first introduction to, uh, to the group and the, the conference and all the different cool zombie spaces. And yeah, it was... You know, just like we are doing it distance. I mean, that was that was it. Damn yeah. 2020. It was <laughs> it was awesome. And then we did 2022 just uh, in October of 2022. And in the meantime, you launched a really awesome show on Channel Z called Zombie History, where like really went into these themes of zombification in terms of, you know, the history of slavery and labor and, I mean, really bringing an awesome lens to a seriously important topic. Mm, thank you. Yeah, zombie history has been super cool. Uh, really focusing on, at least uh, the very start of it, the uh, thinking about the African diaspora and here in the, the new world, to your point about slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, uh, systems of slavery, um, and not just slavery, but systems of resistance since, uh, you know, Africans were trafficked to the so-called new world. So uh, zombie history has been really cool. I mean, I, uh, I, mean I, I know that what I just described is probably less cool, but like cool to create a space, to have these conversations. And, you know, when we think about zombification, I think we're thinking a lot about like the now and the future. And I think zombie history tries to unpack the past, right? Even the idea of zombification in the past, um, you know, what is it that zomb zombified people throughout our history? Uh, so it's been, it's been really great to have this space to explore that and meet with other amazing scholars and practitioners um, to, to talk about that and include them in the conversation. So I've loved exploring the zombie history. Absolutely. Well, maybe we can kind of talk a little bit about the history of zombification <clears throat> and like, you know, where, um, where did the whole idea of the zombie even come from? How sure. is it tied in with, you know, the history of these kinds of issues that you've been talking about? Ah, uh, sure. So I kind of ground the discussion uh, grounded the discussion of the history of zombification uh, in Haiti, right? The and really thought about the the intersection of um, African spiritual practice like voodoo alongside the resistance of the enslaved populations of Haiti uh, and the Haitian Revolution, right? This kind of mashup of events that uh, what I frame and I discuss is kind of the start of modernity, right? Like what's happening in, in, in Haiti or what happened in Haiti. Uh, and so zombification, well, it doesn't just start in Haiti, right? We've got folks who've been trafficked to the so-called new world from West Africa, but this idea um, of zombification of being made, um, well, let's say undead. And there's the ways in which, uh, Slavery itself was a project of zombification, right? To make people undead, right? They're they're there to produce for whoever, right? To produce, but not to have things of their own will or to be, um, you know, following their own dreams and desires, right? They are put into the zombified state. Uh, that becomes really 
relevant, I think, in the discussion of uh, slavery, but also in how we even, we, I, I think, from positioning ourselves for, as in, in the U.S., become interested in and concerned with zombification. And I think our interest and concern in particular stems from um, the U.S., occupying Haiti. So occupying is another way of talking about invading, but, you know, it's a nicer way. Uh, and talking about the U.S. Uh, after the Haitian Revolution, Haitian Revolution is what, 1804? And so the Americans um, come to Haiti in, I think it's 1915, right? And stay for about, what, 16, 17 years occupying um, in Haiti. So that has a, a lot of different impacts. One is you've got American soldiers who are kind of learning about Haitian culture and talking about their experience. It's like, oh, I was in Haiti and what that meant, right? And uh, and what that meant um, in terms of mythology, right? In terms of myths about zombies or about the spiritual practice or even the drums, the presence, things that probably seemed very different to the American soldiers coming to Haiti uh, and mystical, I'm sure. So as they, you know, return home, they're talking about their experiences and even writing books about their experiences, about being in Haiti. Uh, so, so there that, was a lot of kind of cultural back and forth that happened right. as a result of this, this occupation. Right. And a lot of the information sort of about what was going on came to the U.S., but through this lens that was maybe kind of like mystifying or exotifying it in Absolutely. a way. Absolutely. Because that was mm -hmm. like, um, oh, we're in Haiti and there, there's the drums and the, the voodoo and the, right. And it, it, it was really in line of that kind of, um, I don't know, outsider lens, I guess, maybe, you know, from the perspective mm -hmm. of the soldiers there and who would talk about it as it's like this mystical experience of Haiti yeah. um, and really kind of framed Haitians as kind of the, the other, right. That kind of the mystical other. Uh, so that gets discussed in books, but very quickly gets wrapped up in U S film culture. Right. I mean, there's early, it was the first zombie film. Uh, I think it's 1932 white zombie. Right. So, the, you know, Bella Lugosi, was that Bella Lugosi in this one? White zombie. Yeah. So really, very soon, I mean, it becomes a part of popular culture, right? Where you see, oh, how, and how do you get a sense that it's in Haiti? Oh, well, you get the drums and you get the the mystical um, figures throughout the film as representative. So it, it's it's really quite interesting pretty early on how it becomes a part of United States uh, popular culture as early as the 1930s. Right before, yeah. the books came out before that. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, kind of thinking about the, this history, right, the idea of the zombie in film, like, does have its cultural origins in these, like, true examples of zombification mm -hmm. that, you know, were happening in Haiti because of slavery, because of, you know, the use of toxins even to, you know, manipulate people, making them sort of appear um, dead, but then they're actually not like, I mean, there, there was some really interesting stuff going on with like the use of like, um, the you know, the pufferfish toxin to like, make it seem sometimes like people were dead. So, you know, it's cool that there's a lot of actual, like biological and social zombification at the root of 
of what eventually came to be this, you know, this this cultural thing of a, a zombie in U.S. film culture. Can, can I ask a Can I ask a little background question? Um, what could you tell us about the Haitian Revolution? Like, yeah, I mean, just just in general, the Haitian Revolution. I mean, sure, the Haitian Revolution. You know, the hate. Ha- Haiti, well, Haiti's on an island with the Dominican Republic, the islands known as Hispaniola. So you had Spanish um, tra- traffickers on one side, plantation owners and traffickers, and French on the other, right? Um, and the Haitian Revolution is in resistance to this domination of, you know, this kind of, com- this, not kind of, this colonial domination represented in mass enslavement, right? So, uh the revolution was the first i mean this is the this makes haiti the first free black republic when they have a successful re- revolution so the, so the revolution is was essentially the people of haiti rose up against the the french and said get out of here is that basically yeah, what happened? That's right. And you've got famous <laughs> figures like uh, Toussaint Louverture, right, as a, f- a famous leader of the Haitian Revolution, amongst many others, uh, Dessalines, uh, including uh, religious leaders, um, you know, from voodoo that were um, said to be central in the revolution, right? The mixing of like, you know, the spiritual practice with the actual physical resistance as really important to the story. So, yeah, it is resistance to slavery. Yes. Oh, I, I was just because I, I wasn't sure if if people would necessarily know what the Haitian Revolution was, if that makes sense. That's why. I, oh, and no. so, and and as you've, I, I've heard you talk about it before, you know, and you've talked about the sort of way that this was this was like the first sort of slave uprising, right? And that, and well, some successful. of the ways that was mm-hmm. successful ones, right? And so, um. So I guess, I guess what I'm thinking is like, it's always been really fascinating when I've heard you talk about the ways that these stories are sort of, and the stories of Haiti have been sort of reinterpreted in order to be a sort of sometimes a cautionary tale, like a, a propagandistic cautionary tale. You know what I mean? Um, so Yeah, actually, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, um, after Haiti became free, there was a push for the Haitians to pay the French reparations, right? Mm. Because, because the, right, <laughs> apparently the French, right? So, uh, and the French had, you know, beyond, you know, taking national, uh, natural resources um, and um, uh, clear-cutting Haiti, you know, taking mahogany back to um, France, like all of these natural resources that end up in um, France, okay? So it becomes really... Um, very important to the story, right? That the Haitians stood up and resisted and be, and were successful in their resistance, right? Um, as a model, as a model for other places. In fact, after the Haitian Revolution, you had other countries have uh, like immigration policies around Haitians to keep the Haitians out, right? Because they didn't want that sense. I mean, speaking of the idea of mm. zombification and contagion, they didn't want that contagion of, uh, you know, fighting back and resistance to continue, right? And to yeah. spread, and to yeah. spread. 
well, and then and that's like, you know, the other side of zombification, right? Is like if you have a contagion of the idea of resistance, I mean, you could say that there's some element of like, you know, uh influence there um that, you know, is like uh anti-zombification, but you could also say, oh, like some people will frame it like, you know, people are gonna get taken over by these ideas, right? Mm-hmm. That um so so it's it's kind of cool how it applies on so many yeah. different levels. Because it depends on who's telling the story, right? So like if you're, you know, if you're an American trafficker, you're conf- you're afraid of the contagion of the idea of resistance, right? And if you have become free, you want the contagion of resistance, right? You want that to spread from plantation to plantation, from um, place to place. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, I'd love to dig a little bit into sort of the um, the the logic of kind of looking at slavery and the and looking at labor today also because I know like you work on a lot of issues with that too like through this lens of zombification because you know when we talk about like what is zombification what is a zombie right we talk about it as like a, a entity that is that whose you know behavior or physiology is um being you know controlled partially or fully by some other entity that is like genetically not that mm-hmm. entity right like it's something else right it's like being controlled by something else mm-hmm. in terms of physiology and behavior and uh, it seems like you know slavery is a really extreme example of that in terms of sort of you know human to human relationships like where that happens Mm -hmm. and i mean is that the most extreme you think in terms of like you know human to human zombification i'm curious um well it's certainly up there um you know especially considering you know slavery exists in you know today so uh i think it remains a salient uh, example of zombification. We might discuss the um, U.S. carceral state as zombification, right? It zombifies, it eats people alive uh, and it might spit them out maybe, but you know, but it zombifies people. There's systems of slavery within the carceral system. You know, if you're working, if you're making 30 cents, I'm sorry, it's not a real wage, right? Or if you're like in the state of California, you've got um, incarcerated people who uh, fight fires, you know, and we have got lots of fires in California. Although I guess now that's, um, I guess it becomes very, with climate change, I mean, the spread of fires becomes very uh, far. Uh, But anyhow, you've got these incarcerated folks who are fighting fires, and then when they get out, guess what? You think they become become firefighters after years of experience fighting fires? Well, no, they can't because they thought, you know, if they've had a felony, as it stands now, they're unable to actually uh, get hired once they're free from the systems of zombification, a.k.a. the carceral state, to actually use that skill to become um, workers. So there's moves to change that. There's moves right now to change that system, you know, and politics can work very slowly. But uh, I'd say the carceral system is an example of zombification. COVID continues to be example an example of zombification, um, especially as people, more people have it now than ever. Um, and you've got, uh, we're in a time with the trifecta of the flu, RSV, and COVID. Not to mention the people who are dropping dead 
right? Because of vascular issues after getting COVID. So the folks who are after COVID dropping dead of heart attacks, uh, strokes, and so forth. I, I'd say, I, you know, what connected me to the group, you know, in these years has been thinking through the zombification of this COVID experience. So I, I don't think it takes... I don't believe it takes too much to kind of look around us and see examples of zombification pretty um, broadly. Yeah, But I, I guess that's the way I see the world. Zombies everywhere. I know, all of us, right? That's what, what brings us together. That's right. That's well, right. I, I mean, they've been there, right? Like this has been the thing, right? That, that this, these systems have been in place our whole lives and for centuries. And now we're finally saying, hey, I mean, I guess for centuries, people have probably also been trying to say, hey, this is messed up, right? And yeah. so, um, so, so can I ask, what are some of the things we could do to, to de-zombify the carceral system? Oh, uh, well, I think more discussions of abolition, right? And what does it look like? You know, I mean, we've all been, if you've grown up in the U.S., uh, and perhaps probably many other countries, you're probably pretty accustomed to a certain system of punishment, you know, that the state uses. Um, of course, the U.S. is that experience on steroids, right? The U.S. incarcerates more people than any other country anywhere, right? So there's that. Um, and then you kind of have to ask yourself, well, why? And, and is this a system that works? Well, works for hot, for what and for whom, right? Like, that's, I think those are the questions. I mean, it works for companies that have, you know, contracts with prisons to make, you know, bras, right? Or to like right. pick potatoes or make furniture, right? That's working for somebody. Capital wins when they have cheap labor. I mean, isn't that just an extension of slavery? I mean, the U.S. becomes what we call even now, this is the wealthiest country to have ever existed. And why? Because we have a whole, because we had... The, you know, a couple hundred years head start of not paying people wages. And so you get to build things like wealth. You get to build, uh, you know, the Harvards of the world, quite literally built by enslaved people, all the other, uh, you know, Ivies as well. Each of those beautiful Ivy campuses. Let's think about who built those places, right? Those are enslaved populations who built this, including the White House. Who do you think built the White House, right? These are people who've been enslaved. So, um, Really thinking about um, these various systems, and you're right, Dave. There's, I think there's, there's been a constant. I mean, as long as there's been zombification, there's been people who've resisted it, and we would be remiss to not note them, um, particularly when we think about zombification as enslavement. Right? It's pretty rare to talk about slave result, revolts unless you're in those circles, right? Talking about it or reading the histories of various slave revolts, but. Um, those weren't like an every once in a while. I mean, people actively organized for their freedom um, and f and fought for it. And many died for it, you know, attempting to fight for their freedom. So the, the, the examples are all around us, truly. Yeah. Are there, so, you know, the same way that Haiti was like the first successful slave uprising in the, you know, in the Western world, I think. Um, like, are there examples of sort of small-scale places where people have successfully abolished the sort of prison state? Um, oh, um, 
I don't actually know off the top of my head. I do know that there are uh, in other countries that their prison systems are, are, are different. I mean, some might be worse and even more crowded and even more inhumane. And that there's some, I tend to think about like, um, like Northern Europe systems where they, or you'd find folks who might have, um, you know, been, you know, incarcerated for murder and you'll find in their systems will have um, more support for people, like um, an easier ability to see their family, right? Comparatively in the U.S., folks are often moved far from their families. And then you've got predatory systems that prey on their families. So, you know, making a call to a prison will be, you know, way more than you, you know, than any call anywhere. But you pay more to call prisons here, right? So that keeps people disconnected. Or accessing, you know, food and treats, you know, in other places, which, you know, we all like a treat. And yet we know that in the U.S. system that those, um, you know, the commissary, those things are high-priced, um, and make it uh, difficult for people to be able to access those things that make people, you know, add to their humanity. Um, systems where folks are encouraged to study and pursue their degrees. Now, while we have that in the U.S., to some extent, it is, you know, it's on a you know case by case basis what um, jails and which prisons allow for for people to study. Okay. As wow. opposed to other places where it's like, well, you're here, uh, you might as well get, you know, study and get your degree. I mean, it's as, it's as if other countries are saying, okay, these people are a part of our community and there will be a way. And we anticipate that they will be coming back into our community. So how do we make them the best possible versions of themselves to come back into the fold? As opposed to a U.S. system that where you've got to struggle to get educated, where if you get let out, maybe you got a hundred bucks or 200 bucks, good luck, right? Where you're not actually set up for success to be, uh, you know, outside of uh, prison systems, whereas in other places, the goal is to reincorporate people into the community, right? So, yeah. I, I have a question though about this because how much is... How much is our prison system designed to facilitate zombification through the idea of could be worseism, right? This idea that, look, hey, you're a wage slave, but at least you're not in prison. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I don't know. It seems like that's a theme, right? That sort of keeps coming up in terms of zombification through history and zombification through the ways we talk about things is like scaring the heck out of people mm. to say... Mm don't make waves, right? Sure. Yeah. It's funny you say that because when I think about could be worse, it, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Latin America and the Caribbean and it makes me think of, you know, of course there are, um, there's racism, you know, everywhere and including in my experience in Latin America and the Caribbean. And it's funny to hear you say that because often when I'll talk about the presence of like racism in a place, you know, I, you know, I'm from the U S and so many folks will refute my points about racism in that, in the country in which we are, you know, wherever and say, well, you know, it might be bad, but you know what it's not like, it's not like the United States. So that, that the pretty constant thing of like, well, it's bad, but it could be worse and using some other country as the model. And the U S is used as the model. I imagine a lot where it could be worse, at least <laughs> right. in some. but obviously it's used as a model where it could be better. Cause otherwise you wouldn't also have, you know, folks trying to come here. Yeah. I guess that's a little complicated why people come here. Um, so yeah, it could always be worse, but 
I don't know, do we want to be known for that? I mean, you know, I think how we treat incarcerated people for whatever, you know, for whatever reasons people are there, how we treat them, I think, is a reflection of our humanity or our lack thereof, right? I, I, yeah. it, it is it is a reflection of where we stand on these people as human beings. Do If we see them as human beings, if, as we see them, if we see them as a part of our community, if we see them as folks who are going to come back, or as I would argue in terms of the U.S. context, they're meant to always be outsiders after that experience. And how do we know that? Well, because, you know, anyone who's applied for anything in the United States, if you apply for an apartment, if you applied for a job, you already know that it's on the application about whether or not you've been convicted of a felony. Right. And that's going to affect your ability to get a house, to rent a place, to get hired. So so we can just see in what happens when you get out as a reflection on um, our inability to bring those folks back into the our inability, not just our inability, our lack of political will, I guess, to bring people back into the fold. Yeah, it's kind of not part of the culture in the U.S. to look at. You know, like when people are violating, you know, the laws and norms, et cetera, you know, the the first impulse is not, oh, how do we bring these people more deeply into the community? The impulse is, you know, kind of push, push away. That's right. Um, And yeah, you know, like you said, that's that's not how it is in um, a, a lot of other societies around the world. There's sure. a lot of, you know, small scale societies where restorative justice is the sort of default setting, right? Because everyone's like, these are people, they're part of the community. They're not, you know, going to stop being part of the community. They're embedded in, you know, families and, you know, maybe they have children, right? It's like they're, it, it's a benefit to everyone to figure out how to, you know, how to heal those mm-hmm. Uh, wounds that were created, how to right the wrongs, how to work together kind of as a community to to do that. And um, I don't know, when you scale up society, like the way that we have it and people, you know, are highly mobile and not, you know, that interconnected necessarily in, you know, geographic areas and people are doing harm sometimes to people who are part of other communities, right? Like a lot of that will to like, keep everyone in the fold it's it's hard to to get that i think when um you know the the communities are are quite divided often and you know harm is happening not just within so, a group that considers itself a community but you know between them can, can i could i ask in terms of our hyper local community of the zombified brand should we have a, a show that has people who are out of prison on it? Should we have a, you know, should we, are there ways that we could be, I don't know. Like, I was just thinking about this because I was like, well, first I was like, well, could ASU be hiring? Could we be pushing to hire people who have had a criminal record? Could we, you know what I mean? Like, are there ways, if we were to bring this down to the local level, what are some of the things that could be done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, um, well, I think there's some things that we've kind of done a, a little bit, you know, um, we recently had a show at the ZAM 2022, um, and with, uh, 
uh, one of your students, Athena. Yeah, with um, Ona Wang. That's yeah. right. Who uh, amazing student who uh, is talking and and doing work in restorative justice, and so even bringing up that conversation, I think, and providing more spaces for us to be talking about it. Um, uh, folks who've been incarcerated, you know, having some representation, talking about these issues. I mean, I could talk about it from, you know, my positionality, but it's nothing like the position of someone who's experienced it, who can speak about it from that first person perspective. And also to help us imagine, you know, what else could work, right? It's, you know, they say, you don't know what you don't know. And so if we all have seen just a system of a certain kind of punishment, it can be hard to envision a different way of doing things, right? Which is why, you know, these folks, there are folks within the country, to Athena's point, who are already in smaller communities working on restorative justice, who are already, who you know, folks who are abolitionists, right? And in this case, right, you think about abolition when it comes to slavery, pushing for the end of slavery, there are folks who are abolitionists when it comes to thinking about the carceral state, the end of the carceral state, right? And these are folks who are envisioning you know, a new world, a new system for doing things that isn't based purely on punishment, right? Some systems are clearly based in rehabilitation. Ours is clearly about punishment, right? So um, that said, I think we could have just more representation in shows and so forth. But as a as an organization, I think always making room for folks who have you know, we're, I mean, we're all human, you know, folks who've transgressed, especially through this lens of restorative justice and to be brought back into the fold. Like we have to like, our politics have to be in action, right? Where it's not just talking about it. It's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we bring people into the fold? How do we have folks representative? And right, the carceral state is not just folks who are being sent off to prisons, right? The carceral state starts in our in our culture, it starts with little kids, right? It starts with police in schools. It starts with detentions. It starts with this school to prison pipeline, right? It starts with this anticipation and expectation that folks won't even finish high school because they're going to be kind of cold off, right? So our exploration of our, our carceral way of doing things would start even with, um, with kids, right? Even like uh, kids who are, you know, we have a system that rather than um, give, provide parents the resources that they need to raise their children, including, you know, food and housing, rather than teach, you know, r- rather than provide parenting classes for parents, will instead take their kids away and put them into either the foster system, right? We have whole systems that will, that are carceral in nature, not just those people who are sent off to prison, Right. So I think, um, yes, it's hiring people, but it's I think it's also unpacking the different ways that we have this kind of reiteration of carceral system. Right. By removing children from their home. Right. Removing them from from their parents. I'm not saying in a situation that's not dangerous for them. I mean, in a place where it's like, could we make this better for these parents so they can be better parents to their children? Right. Rather than our system, our go to being like, take the kids. That's carceral. That's a carceral response is to is to um, to do that. So I don't know, Dave. I think it's all around us ways. I think we can at least acknowledge it as a baseline, um, <laughs> and then um, I don't know. I guess a lot of this will come out of our policy. Yeah, I, I kind of want to get into the 
the mechanisms a little bit of, you know, like, like what is going on? Like, how is the zombification actually happening? Like, you know, when uh, maybe we can kind of start with slavery and then kind of move forward to, you know, thinking about these, you know, other, other systems where maybe it's, you know, uh, maybe some of the same mechanisms are at work. But I mean, if we think about slavery, I mean, it's almost so obvious that it doesn't need to be said, but I think it's, it's worth like thinking about like what is actually happening in terms of the zombification, right? There's, there's a control over, um, you know, like the physical body of the person like right they don't they're not allowed to make their own decisions about you know where they live what they eat how much they sleep how much they work right there's i mean it's just a almost a full taking over of all of the autonomy of a person i mean i, I know there was a variation right among mm-hmm. you know slave owners and plantations in terms of how they treated their slaves but the sort of bottom line or default right is just like a human being owned mm-hmm. by another human mm-hmm. yeah i mean and all of that that's around the physical it doesn't even get to the psychological trauma and ways of um capturing someone's soul through this kind of s- mental part i mean so yes and there's all of that that you've laid out uh and the psychological trauma that might keep i mean to highlight the psychological trauma, right? What is the difference between those who are like willing or who are willing to organize for a rebellion versus those who weren't or for those who would tell on those who were organizing a rebellion, right? What is the thing going on where it's like these people are going to, you know, fight back that either says I'm with them or I'm telling on them, right? I would say that additional part is a psychological control over folks, right? This uh, folks that uh, I know that can't make decisions, or I mean, the belief, you know, that ingrained belief that um, people believing that white people are better than black people, that you're not able, capable of making these decisions, that you know they know best, or that Christianity, which is forced on people throughout the Americas, was like the, that that. You know, that was the right God that was going to, you know, punish or that they were being punished already for some sort of religious transgression. Um, so all of those things act as zombifying forces. There's the, the, the threat of physical violence. Not just that. I mean, people would be beaten in front of people to instill the threat, right? Then still mm-hmm. the psychological violence of, um, you know, of public tortures, you know, public tortures, public hangings, right? These things have a insidious effect on other folks that like would keep someone maybe from wanting to partake in a resistance, an act of resistance. So I think the slavery one, um, it's 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 multifold, right? The zombification of that. I guess we could always ask, you know, because I think it's clear about the zombification of the enslaved. But I guess we could ask about the zombification of the enslavers. Hmm. I mean, I mean, it might be, it might be considered another kind of zombification, but like what is happening, right? What is spreading in such a way that folks believe with all their hearts and souls that like, you know, some beings aren't human and while others are, and some are valued while others aren't, right? Like, is that a sort of zombification happening? That kind of belief, 
Yeah, I mean, the sort of othering that is required in order, I think, for people to be able to do something like that and feel okay, right? You have to um, have a sort of separation there where you don't consider, you know, other people as human in the same way, right? That's sort of like, you know, dehumanization. I mean, we, we know that like during times of like war and conflict and stuff, right, that dehumanizing the enemy is a huge part of, you know, what happens that enables violence to occur. And it seems like some similar mechanisms potentially be at work here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you, absolutely. That dehumanization is a baseline. I think it can zombify the the zombies and those who zombify, right? I mean, we can think about think about American heroes. Think about Thomas Jefferson, former president of the United States of America, right? Thomas Jefferson, who uh, guess what? What thirty was raping a fourteen year old slave and had six, I think, at least children with her. Right. And the discussion about her, uh, 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 Sally Hemings, was that, you know, that as, as though she were a grown woman. Right. This temp- right. She was 14. Right. And so or same person, Thomas Jefferson, they talk about, uh, you know, that some of his teeth, you know, to they were placed, they were teeth of enslaved people. Right. So Ooh. saying, oh, you need a new tooth. Okay, well, we'll get we'll get that worked out, right? So, really thinking about the the ways in which people are dehumanized um, and fully used, and at the same time, I mean, for us discussing our our, our history, our really complex and troubled history, right, where we kind of have to maintain, well, seemingly a sort of cognitive dissonance about the actions of some of our what the founders, when they talk about the founding fathers or founders, those actions alongside the fact that many of them were um, slave owners, had massive plantations. And right, that's cognitive dissonance to be like this great hero, right? And then this is another hand to be thinking about, wow, what this mass, this is a mass slaver. I mean, what other words do we call it besides in our current day as mass human traffickers, right? Where we, you know, revere as heroes as well. So. Are we all enslaved? Are we all zombified by our mythology? Right? Yeah, well, and I mean that's the thing that, you know, I'm thinking about as you're as you're saying this is, you know, there's this this sense of, you know, like if you're in a culture and an economic system and you, you know, you're like you you live in it, you're born into it, you grow into it, you, like is there a level on which people just then don't question you know, well, what is, you know, like, what is actually happening in this system? Who is um, benefiting? Who is, um, you know, having costs on them? Is this system just? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, but maybe there's something about like, you know, like us, like we as humans can be zombified almost by like, oh, this is just how it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um Yes, when you say that, oh, it makes, my mind goes in all kinds of places. Um, but let me think, focus on um, the folks during the eras of slavery who said this is just how it is. Um, I think we have to recognize, even in that time where that is the culture and that's the state of things, I mean, live in a slave system. Even if you lived in the north of the United States, 
even if there wasn't, you know, um, plantations in your community, the Northerners benefited off slave systems. Let's not forget like banks of like banks of America had insurance policies on enslaved people. Right. So these old institutions in our country participated in slavery in one way or another. Okay. So they're insurance slaves. Um, they are, uh, taking products out of the South, right. If it be like, um, cotton and turning it into thread and so forth, but they're participating in the system. However, what I want to say is even with everything being as it was, right, the whole country is a slave system. You still had abolitionists. You still had not only black folks who were fighting for resistance, you had white people who were abolitionists who were speaking out about this. Right. So, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that there were always folks who spoke out because it, it's like if everybody's in some sort of like slumber, there were still people who were telling others to wake up, right? Mm-hmm. They were, and, it, and it's not even people who say, well, you've got to judge people on the time that they're in. That's fine because in the time that they were in, they were abolitionists. I don't even have to judge them from my perspective now. I can judge them from the perspective of people who were organizing as abolitionists then to stop the slave trade. Right, we'll judge them on their own terms. There were people there. If they, if if the culture was zombified, there were people who found a way to resist that even then. Right, um, I think we can think about yeah. to, to current examples as well. Yeah. So then the question kind of becomes, you know, what keeps some people slumbering while others wake up? Mm-hmm. You know what what keeps some people just being zombies to the system that they're participating in, perhaps benefiting from, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus saying, you know, hey, actually, you know, the looking at the the flows of, you know, goods and services and information and the way that things are structured, there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel like people who ask questions, right? People who are... Go- people who are willing to ask questions of the status quo. And I think they've always existed. Uh, and many over, over our you know, eras have lost their lives because they ask questions of the status quo. Um, but I think that we have to be grateful that there were always folks who are willing to say, hold on a second, <laughs> hold on a second. Why is this this way? And why are we doing it this way? Whether it be from the systems of slavery to our carceral system to COVID, why are we doing it this way? What's happening, right? So, you know, I think, you know, God bless the people who ask questions and those who aren't going to go with, as my mom would say, the okie doke, right? Who, those who aren't just going to go along to get along, those who might say, you know, they take a little pause and think a little bit more deeply about what's happening, or maybe deeply, maybe that's not the right word, but who are going to stop and think and ask questions of what's of the systems in which they live. Um, those are the, as we might know them now, I'd say those are the real punk rock people throughout the ages, <laughs> right? Who were like, let's ask questions, you know, let's, right? Because in a system, you know, people want, you know, let's just go along. This is the way we do things. The people who ask questions are the real uh, rebel rousers. Well, I, I mean, I know I've spent a decent part of my life both asking questions and then simultaneously benefiting from slavery. Um, mm-hmm. And even to the point where I used to be involved with like this like alert group to like 
that was like a anti-human trafficking group. And we were talking about, you know, in Arizona, there's a lot of human trafficking in the sort of gardening industry, right? With people coming up or brought up from Mexico and uh, that we were always supposed to watch out if somebody said, don't give my employees the check. And then I've had that happen where somebody said, oh, don't give, don't give him the check. And I did nothing, you know, because I was like, well, I don't know what to do, you know, and I, I don't know. It's, it's hard because. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Like, Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, I, I hear you. It's one thing to think about what we would do in a conceptual, like conceptually, you know, someone would come along, I'd, I'd fight them. I do this, I would do that, you know, and you think about it. And then there's a the question when it's happening, like, you know, what is our physical response? Do we, do we freeze? Do we, you know, and then you're thinking about it. Then we're thinking about it for, wow, oh, should I have done something differently? Should I right. I didn't, I didn't say, I mean, wait, why, why can't I um, give him the check? I, I, I just you. gave the guy, to kind of the other guy, the check. Things like, happening as so, they're happening. Right. It can be hard oh. to, to do it in the moment. Mm-hmm. But you're still thinking about it. I wonder if that were to happen again, how you would respond. You know, I mean, if it's something that's happened, you're still kind of reflecting about okay that that instance. The question, I guess, would be: Would given the opportunity now, would you do would you do it differently? Or if it were to happen again, how might how might you react? You know, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I am still trying to figure out. Well, people are. I mean, I think you. So. I think you've got to give yourself some grace as people. I mean, as uh, you know, we we are people here, right? And and giving ourselves some grace for not always knowing how to respond in situations, right? Especially if it's new, it's it's hard to know how to um, respond. Um, but thankfully, we've got people in our communities who are thinking about these things, right? Who are trying to think about ways of responding to help kind of um, provide the rest of us kind of like a guide or like a how-to. If this happens, you can do this. Um, What comes to mind as I say this is thinking about um, communities who put out lists on things that they, so if something's happening in your community or um, something's going on, people have created a whole list of saying things you can do instead of calling the cops, Right. Because all of us have been trained, we've been our whole lives, we're in kindergarten, right? You get trained on what you do if there's an emergency. It's drilled into our minds. Who do you call? How do you call emergency? Who's supposed to protect you, right? That's drained into us in our, it's part of how we're socialized in this country as kids, probably in all countries. But how do you, who do you call when you need support? Now, um, we also know, I mean, just based on the data that, um, you know, police can make a situation more dangerous, um, right? You, you all of a sudden introduce weapons into, say, someone's having a mental health, health crisis. And then if you then introduce someone who's armed into it, it doesn't always go well for the person in crisis. In fact, um, it's Andrea Ritchie, scholar Andrea Ritchie, who, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the name of her book. She's got a couple of different books, but uh, really highlighting that uh, for disabled people, when you call the police on them, they're 50% likely to not leave that situation alive, right? Uh, so if it's, uh, it makes things more dangerous. It can make things more dangerous. And then you have people being, well, what do you do? If someone's having a crisis out here, honestly, I don't want you to know the answer to this, Dave. If someone's having a crisis <laughs> out here by my apartment, I would be in that same, but what do I do 
rather than call the cops, right? Is there social work? Are there other community resources? Is there something I can do besides introducing um, weapons into the situation? And we kind of know at this point that um, officers aren't really necessarily trained to, um, they're not supposed to be sociologists, not sociologists, social workers, for example, or all these things that we expect them to do and they're not um, there to do. So I think we have to rely on the people who are creating scripts for us on how do we retrain ourselves to do something different? How do we actually provide community support to one another? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I, I'd love to, you know, kind of before we finish out this episode, come back to this like big picture issue of the, you know, systems that we're embedded in and the trickiness of like resisting sometimes because, you know, we're all embedded in systems that, um, support us in certain ways, constrain us in certain ways, right, um, that we benefit from, that benefit from us. Um, you know, w- those of us who have children, like, you know, are like worried about, okay, well, how can we make sure that our children will be okay in the system that is the system that is, right? Like, so that, it creates a, I mean, so now I, I think I'm going to go like a little bit like Evsyke, right? Because, you know, you, if you think about us as humans, right? We have all of these um, motivations that are sort of, you know, built into us to like take care of our kin and our friends and the people that we're interdependent with um, to, you know, find mates and to some extent, hopefully keep those mates, (laughs) Um, you know, to acquire resources um, and to have some security, you know, also all of these things, you know, like we have, mechanisms built in to us, right, to like, try to do those things. And sometimes those goals can be best achieved by going along with a system that you're born into, especially if you are lucky enough to be born into a position in that system where you are benefiting, right? So then the question becomes like, how, how do we I'm not going to say like fight against human nature because I think there's actually a lot of parts of human nature where it's like we actually don't like or want to be, you know, um, put like way out ahead of a lot. Like maybe some people do. Some people want to be like, you know, the one leader with all the stuff. But I think a lot of people like want to be part of a community and would rather be embedded in a community where people's needs are being met than like be the one like person on top who gets to make all decisions and do all this stuff. Um, So, you know, how, but how do we grapple with the fact that there is a side of human nature that can be greedy and can be like entitled and can, you know, all, all of these things that, you know, can reinforce these structures and also, you know, in a way zombify some people. Like, I mean, I especially think of like the issue of kids, right? It's like, you know, yeah, you might be like, fuck the system but then you're like wait a second the system's going to be around for a while and my kids are only going to be okay if like you know i teach them to follow those rules and i follow the rules so that i don't get socially excluded so my kids don't get the benefits of being in the system mm-hmm. oh yeah that's it's 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 to- you're right on and it's um it's a hard position to be in to uh to be thinking about how do you create a foundation for, I don't want to just say resistance, resistance and creating something better, 
right? They say another world is possible, right? If another world is possible, it's going to take us to do the work to get to another world, including other communities, like creating communities that model how, or, you know, creating relationships that model how we want to be to one another. Uh, I think I find some, I mean, I, I guess I keep coming back to this. I find hope in examples of like mutual aid or, you know, folks who even, you know, folks who want to like buy property together or for a lot of folks maybe might be the only way to do it. Right. But trying to create a new way of existing together. And I think there's always been folks who are on the forefront of that, as you note. Um, and it is hard. I think that's what's so complicated about it is that it is, it is hard to be the one or the ones who are like, this is, we shouldn't be going this way. We should be doing something different because, because what the mass of the culture is going to go along with the way that things are. Right. So either what you who are thinking about life in a different way, either you're crazy or you're going to be viewed as the crazy one anyhow. Um, or what, but like, what do you do when you, what, I don't know that you can un, know some of these things or once you hit a, a way of thinking about slavery or resistance or uprisings i don't know that you can go back to just being like well go along to get along yeah right or once you know about covid and heart attacks and strokes i don't know that you go back I me mean, it's like you it's you don't unknow how you can't unknow this stuff so you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't once you know it once you've got clarity, you're kind of in a not great position because you're either going to have to be on the forefront and recognize that you're going to, um, in some cases be ostracized or looked at as totally not because it's just, you know, come on, we're all doing this one thing and this one's crazy or, <laughs> or, or I mean, try to find like-minded people. Cause there's no that's way what we I was going to say. Alone. Right. right. It's like once you start being like, oh, OK, yeah, you think something's not all right about this. Me, too. And then at least being able to, like, have that shared understanding. That's at least a place to start from for creating potential new ways of doing things, approaching things, new systems, new ways of, you know, like how how we handle Things like, you know, distributing resources and helping each other, like, like mutual aid, right? Like all all of those things, like if we have a shared understanding that like, oh, yeah, actually, uh, you know, hey, I would rather be a part of a community where like I know that somebody's going to be there for me if something really bad happens. I'd prefer that over, you know, having a ton of spending money every month, mm -hmm. right? Like and you know, if you find some other people who are also in that same boat in terms of their preferences, then, I mean, you can actually literally start building different institutions. Like, um, I, I'm just thinking of there's this really cool um, company based out of San Francisco called Pando um, that um, they, they, like, create formal risk pools for people. So you, like, you can choose. So it started with um, professional... Um, athletes because you know some can make like millions of dollars and others can make like nothing and um they'll decide like before you know they make it big to like go in together so that if one of them makes over a certain threshold then everybody in the pool gets some like really small percentage usually it's like um like two percent of something over a threshold then gets split among all the people in the pool so it's not that much if you end up making a huge amount of money but if you end up 
like not you know making it big at all um it actually like having just that small percentage like makes a big difference Mm -hmm. for people and one of the cool things um you know from this is that like you know these people choose to be in a pool together and then they all have a stake in each other's success right in a very real way so then like it becomes a community of support too so you know you can like build different kinds of systems even within a broader system that maybe is you know not prioritizing like you know like what do we do about people who are you know falling through the cracks or the you know consequences of the winner take all economy or whatever right like it, it's possible to build those communities and they can be small but super impactful and so i mean i think like just being willing and ready to you know think differently to try new models to you know build those communities however small they are um is a cool place to start so so i I, but i I do want to also just add going back to your question about how do we deal with this as parents Mm. That's you, so hard. It's not. No, it is. It is no, hard, but is. I, I don't think the decision is hard. I think you've got to <laughs> be like, you, your kids are going to grow up to be little Luke Skywalkers looking as, as you as some sort of Darth Vader, right? Where it's like, you take the, your kids want you to take the hit. They want you to stand up for the things you believe in because they believe in those same things and they're tougher than you think and they'll take those hits with you. So if... Sometimes you've got to be like, you know what? I'm putting myself out there and I'm taking a big risk for what I believe is right. They'll love it, mm-hmm. I think. So it, it will certainly teach them to do the same or to be willing to uh, stand up for uh, what they see as right. And, and I, yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And then I, to your example, Athena, I think that's a really great example of, right, in that we live in such a, in that our system is like what it is. It's extensive. It's like massive. I mean, whatever aspect you want to talk about, it's like, as it stands right now, it's like um, embedded in our culture. But to that example, there are these examples all throughout of people doing something different. We're going to try another way. We're going to do this, even if it's it's small. And if anything, probably especially if it's small, because that's the way to actually get some of this stuff off the ground. Or the restorative justice, right? The the different communities, because it's it it is it does exist in different communities across the U.S. Some folks who are who have been brought on board with the restorative justice approach. So I think the more of us that are willing to do it on our local levels, whatever it is, like the um, that's insurance idea, um, restorative justice at whatever local level. I mean, it can be in my little community here, right, to be connected and be talking about restorative justice. Like the, that is the, that's the driver. We start small, what they say, think globally, act locally, right? So maybe that's the way we do it. Because if you think so big, I mean, shoot, you would just crawl in bed and not do anything because that <laughs> it would just right, be yeah. too big to do, to, res- to, yeah. to respond to. But yeah. if we start small, you know, we all have a little bit of energy to start small, right? Yeah, yeah. that's awesome and inspiring. And I'm almost hesitating to ask this last question, but we always, we we always have to yeah, ask this question ask because, yeah, which is, um, I, I mean, I think like there's, there's a lot of potential answers to this, but the, the question is like, what is the zombie apocalypse of the kinds of zombification that we've been talking about. Mm. I almost feel like, you know, maybe that has 
already happened in our history, but <laughs> but I will I will leave it to you. So it's a zombie apocalypse. Okay. Like if you take these kinds of zombification, right? And you just like turn it up a little bit, like turn mm-hmm. it up a few notches. What is the zombie apocalypse of this kind of, you know, full taking over of somebody's mind, body, spirit, labor, all of the things. Hmm. Okay. The zombie apocalypse, I think, I, I guess I'm starting from the lens of like incarceration. Um, I think the, the revving up of like um, the willingness of like places like in California, the willingness to invest um, millions into new prisons over new universities, right? There's something like, I don't know, 20 new prisons built in the last 25 years here and one new university. That's the last UC, UC Merced, right? And then you see where this, but that to me is a certain representation of an apocalypse, right? If you're going to build, right? Because who are those prisons for, right? I mean, who are they, who, who are you going to house there? Uh, I think that's a representation of ramping up the apocalypse. Um, I thought that, um, I mean, a lot less conversation about it in these days now, but um, with uh, the Trump administration beginning to uh, lock up kids, you know, separate kids from their parents and lock them up, um, these, what they call it, they're prisons, but uh, they got a nicer name for them, detention centers, but they're, they're prisons for um, children and their families and separating them. And think of the thousands of kids who never saw their parents again to this day, right? Like those things to me, when we ramp up the car source state or uh, our willingness to put our public budgets and continue to grow budgets in policing, right? That to me, that is a ramping up of uh, the apocalypse, right? Because we've already seen that police don't actually keep communities safe, Right. So what does it mean as a culture to be constantly talking about, oh, crime and punishment? So we talk about crime. Well, we could talk about um, educating people and and um, employing people. Right. I mean, crime's going to go up when you have when you have a lack of those things. But instead, we talk about things like um, prisons, more police um, as the response to the the cracks in our culture, right? To the, as the response to poverty as policing rather than housing or food, right? That to me is representation of a sort of apocalypse. And the current administration, the Biden administration is just as much on board as the last administration. And you know how we can see it? We can see it in the budget. The budget, as I've seen some people discuss as a moral document. So when you see a proposed budget of increasing um, billions into um, policing, That's for people at home. And the flip side of that is increasing billions to places like the Pentagon so that we could do it abroad. Right. So it's it's the flip side of the same coin where policing uh, and punishment is, um, you know, both a national project, but also an international and foreign policy project. Right. If you're doing things like we could be putting that money, you fill in the blank. Housing, we've got all these unhoused people, right? We've got issues around inflation. But we can see their positions by saying, no, more military budget. We need more tanks, more drones, more bombs. Well, who are those for, <laughs> right? Let's not forget that those tanks uh, and bombs and things, when they don't get used abroad, as we saw in the protest <laughs> 2020, guess where they get used? They get used right here at home. When we saw tanks rolling down the places, rolling in the streets of Seattle, 
<laughs> right? Uh, so that to me, the ramping up of a kind of uh, incarceration and policing on a la- national and international level, that's pretty apocalyptic. Right. Keep in mind. And, and don't don't forget about the drones because the drones oh, don't yeah. have any consciousness. So if, oh, if yeah. the government says tells the drones to shoot us, they won't question it at well, all. Drones, so. and we already see that discussed in a global sense of uh, collateral damage, right? And and so called insurgents losing their lives. We're talking about people who are getting bombed at their weddings, right? And kids getting bombed and so forth. So it's I, I think the analysis we have to, well, I would say we have to have about the apocalypse is that it's not just what's internal in the U.S. It's, you know, domestic policy and foreign policy as a representation of a sort of uh, carceral apocalypse. Uh, well, I'm so glad that we have some, you know, things that we can do like locally and on a small scale and like think about because it is really overwhelming. Absolutely. Like, Honestly, to hear all that and be like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, like the the scale of the issues that we're dealing with. But I mean, the fact is like it does start, you know, change does start with people just changing the way they're interacting with each other. And it only takes two people agreeing that they're going to be there to help each other out um, to start actually changing the way that all these structures work. I would say that's like. It's just, you know, little and, seeds. So. And teaching, right? I mean, teach, yeah. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And this stuff isn't exactly like on the nightly news about the relationships between these things, right? I mean, it's not just for those in positions of, you know, teaching, right? Each each of us can teach, right? And share with one another so that we can all have a more complex view of the world. And the way that it is, it's a complex world, right? And we just have to set up our viewings of it to match kind of what's going on. So I'm so optimistic. I know a lot of that is, uh, as I tell my students, I know it's a lot of it's depressing, but the optimistic part is, as you've noted, Athena, right? The spaces where we can work together. Um, and I would be on the team where we we must do it. Like we owe it to um, ourselves, our children and future generations that we've got to say something. Just like uh, in eras of slavery, and we'll continue now, but let's talk historical slavery, where you had the people willing to risk their lives to free others. And you had abolitionists, right? People of their time, judging people of their time saying, you know what? This is wrong. <laughs> right. So yeah. Everybody, we can poco a poco. We, we go and we, we, we do our <laughs> things to, you know, put cracks into this system the way we have it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then have something to, that we're building. That's, you know, I mean, it, it I think if we can build things also that can just exist within the current system and grow, then like you're starting to just like create alternatives without necessarily having to spend a lot of energy fighting or resisting. You're just like, hey, I'm just going to put my energy into doing this thing that I think is good for myself and my family and my community and my network. And, you know, acts of resistance can just be acts of creating alternatives sometimes. And one alternative that I think will tie this all together is the folks who are continuing to work in prisons and build uh, academic programs, spaces for folks who are incarcerated to get educated, um, to do certificate programs, to get their general education done, right? Like that is a direct intervention, right? In the carceral state that we're talking about, right? Remember, Country's country incarcerates more people than any other country, right? An intervention is to empower those who are incarcerated to learn um, and to uh, 
uh, empower them to learn and get their degrees and to have the space to um, be prepped when they are, are on the outside to do the same thing, build communities, support one another, right? Represent one another. Um, and I think we have that role here. So even in their positions for those of us who are teaching and for those of us who are teaching, right? There are all kinds of ways we can do our part. Something. Zalakazi, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And as always, like you just expand my mind and my thinking in directions I would not otherwise, you know, really just be sitting down and thinking about and talking about. So I really appreciate you. And thank you so, so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you both. And if the whole world says that we're Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media. And we would like to thank everyone who uh, helped make this possible and then didn't fire us afterwards, (laughs) including (laughs) the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU. The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. All of the brains that get in there, the nitty gritty to make this podcast. Uh, Tall Rom, who does our sound. Neil Smith, who makes us look like zombies. Lemmy, who uh, wrote and performed and produced our song, Psychological. You can uh, check Lemmy out on Spotify and listen to Psychological over and over again on repeat if you if you want. Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> Don't lie. Come on. That's, that's, that's not what our show's about. Just admit, admit that you did it. Um, and uh, we'd also like to thank the Z team. So. Yeah, we have a, a great team of undergraduates and graduate students and you know staff and like so many people who help make this podcast possible, help make Channel Z possible. Um, faculty members, too. I mean, so many people who are just showing up um, to help and also create transcripts of our episodes so that they're um, accessible. So Z-Team, you're awesome. Thank you. And everyone out there should follow and support us by checking us out on Twitter and Instagram and yeah we're we're zombified pod and also um, then like on Facebook and I think on Instagram now we're zombified media we're kind of like moving everything to zombified media so just 
follow all the zombified media stuff. There you go. Yeah. And uh, and you can go to zombified.org, which is the website. Yes. And, uh, and you can find all of the links out to all of the things from zombified.org. Um, and uh, you, you can also go to zombifiedmedia.org if you want to see stuff about the conference, if you want to have the links to Channel Z and, and all of that. So. Oh. Yeah. Wait. So which one is going to... If we were just going to go to one, would we go to zombifiedmedia.org? You could go to, if you want all of the all of the things if with the zombified media world, then you go to zombifiedmedia.org. If you just want like the links to all the podcasts and all the art and no, stuff just, like let's that. just send them to one place. Just zombified media. <laughs> That's it from here on out. Um, and so, so I have a question because also they can buy they can buy shirts and yeah, things. we have so much merch. Do we know are those like fair trade? Are the people who make those properly compensated? given the context of our show or do we have no idea i don't know erica set it all up all right we should find out yeah I think. so we'll find out guys yeah. so um but go ahead and just buy it now anyway <laughs> speaking of being zombified by the systems that we're in yes. buy stuff um. <laughs> well thank you all for listening to zombified and buying our merch um we're your source for fresh brains crazy but it seems so logical i can't deny that there is something supernatural with you makes me act the way